I'm Matt Booker. And I'm Dave Laird. And I'm Claire Hayes Brady. You are here. It's conversation time. Shall we discuss Byzantine erotica? It's the Great Concavity. We shall. We shall discuss it. <laughs> I don't. I don't actually know a lot about Byzantine erotica. I mean, I love a racy mosaic, but you know, <laughs> you're a sucker for a racy mosaic. I, can't, I think. Can't resist I think we the all, tiles. Yeah. You know, it's it's I'm a tactile person. So. <laughs> tactile. Yeah, that that takes on a new meaning. <laughs> What's funny is if you Google Byzantine erotica, the first like ten, <laughs> ten results are all um, about infinite jest. Oh, that's 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 comforting. I suppose. Yeah, yeah, a little upsetting though. I mean, surely there's a rich history in, in Byzantine erotica, I, w- I, would, I would think. And what? Wallace has just usurped all of that yeah, in one yeah, fell swoop. Yeah, he's getting in the way. <laughs> I think he actually gets the time frame of it wrong, though, and that it's not Byzantine erotica. It's like Pompeii has yeah, a lot of okay. erotic. Oh, yeah. So okay. I, it's one of those like f- errors in the book. Yeah, and there are so many. And it's, it's always, I always wondered this, um, whether whether to take them as errors or as, as intentional errors. And it's always hard to right. tell, I think. Um, mm. But it's one of the most interesting things, and his his spelling of Quebecois um, is yeah. one that that always confused me because I think he spells it wrong. Quebecois, mm. the that actual word. Yeah, I think he spells oh, yeah. it wrong pretty persistently. <laughs> there are two ways That's of spelling funny. it, and he doesn't use either of them. So. <laughs> yeah, and again, I, I don't know. My Quebecois isn't isn't particularly strong. No, oddly. I'm, um, mine neither. <laughs> so so I don't know. Um, I was yeah. The the error thing is 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 I think really interesting. Yeah. So we're speaking here today with Claire Hayes Brady. Let's back <laughs> yes. up and get Sorry. into yeah. a little bit of introduction. Claire is a scholar at uh, Trinity College in Dublin. Uh, University there. College Dublin now. Oh, yeah, uh, so po- I've, I've gone to the dark side. <laughs> UCD, not yeah, TCD. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm still. I still have a TCD address. I'm oh. still. Uh, I'm still around there. So. Oh yeah. So you you did your your PhD at. At yeah, at TCD. Yeah, okay. I did my undergrad um, and my PhD. And actually, I went to uh, I went to play school um, in Trinity. My my parents teach there, <laughs> oh, wow. so I was in Trinity oh, my whole life. Um, wow. So yeah, so, and, and I left like a couple of years ago, and I've gone over to UCD, which in Dublin is a big uh, a big change. Oh <laughs> yeah, like yeah, you playing teams, for the other essentially. team exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Dublin has become, uh, you know, kind of a hotbed of Wallace studies. It has. Yeah, it has. I was it's just great. thinking that this morning, too. Um, so you got yeah, Adam Kelly, a few of us. yourself, um, Tim Yeah, Groland. Adam, Tim, Tom, Tracy yeah. is here, too. Philip um, Coleman. Philip is here as well. Of course, Philip supervised Tim and, and myself mm. um, uh, during our PhDs. So, um, yeah, it's it's a funny a funny thing. It's There's a little enclave here. Um, yeah. And we all get really excited when we see each other. <laughs> <laughs> which and, is once a week, right? You guys yeah, have a weekly Wallace yeah. meeting, I mean, obviously. Adam's gone yeah. to York, which is which is very sad. So we, right. we miss him. Um, but yeah, we see each other fairly regularly. Uh, it's, cool. it's really nice, actually. Brad, and, um, that's great. You're also the author of a book that just came out this year. I guess it came out earlier in 2016. That's right. Was it was it June, May, or June? Uh, no, that it, came, it out? came out in or February. Um, yeah, oh, it no, it was February. it was a while oh. ago. Yeah, uh, it came I'm out in February um, and has been. Um, yeah, we we launched it in April, right before I had my right before I had my daughter. Um, yeah, yeah, it's been a busy year <laughs> a busy for you. Year for Congratulations me. on that, Thank by you. the way. Thank you very much. Very um, cool. So yeah, I'm 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 delighted with the book, um, obviously, and it's again there's a there's a real kind of. Um, seeing Dave's book come out um, in, mm-hmm. in the, the last couple of weeks and everything, there's some yeah. really some really exciting stuff happening at the moment. Yeah, um, for sure. 
So your so book the, is called The Unspeakable Failures of David Foster Wallace, Language, Identity, and, and Resistance. Resistance. Yes. A very provocative title, I yeah, might say, Yeah, I thought Claire. I would get some trouble for that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah. I had a sneaking suspicion that it was, you were, so the title was, was trying to hook the re, the reader in a compelling way, which it does. A little. But, but that, but that, that failure might have sort of an alternate uh, sort of definition or subtext and my my suspicions were confirmed in your introduction that yeah you're not necessarily saying that wallace is, wallace is a failed writer no in, in like in a total way but there are elements of his work yeah that are, that are yeah. highly geared I, towards types of failure yes yeah. i think it's it's sort of twofold i mean i think that there are there are elements of, of wallace's work that do fail absolutely that, that sure. are, are yeah like, you definitely outline that um, <laughs> like any writer of course and I, I think I think that's a, a really interesting area of any writer's work to study but but also I'm interested in the concept of failure which he and, and the lack of completion which he comes to I think again and again uh, right from the start mm. um, and, and I'm, I'm really I, I see I very much see Wallace's work as, as quite coherent kind of beginning to end um, I really, I really see a thread from from the start, and and it very much is to do with non-completion, with lack of closure, and and often with failure. I think um, so. That's where it came from. Hmm. But yeah, it's a total clickbait of a title. Um, it, it definitely <laughs> <Clickbait>. is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it is. It is, a, of, it is an analog book, but uh, it's clickbait. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> it, it kind of mirrors, you know, Wallace's supposed title or subtitle of infinite jest which is a failed, failed, entertainment. A failed entertainment yeah right yeah, yeah i think so and and so he was aware of you know i think it's wrapped up with what the reasons why people would read a book of that size yeah yeah absolutely and can you speak to that a little bit because your your book covers a lot of ground <laughs> uh, you, mm-hmm. you know you you it's seven it's really about seven chapters yeah. of a little bit of fiction non-fiction philosophy um gender identity all, all kinds of themes that you cover yeah. in the book so i have difficulty you, focusing <laughs> oh no no i think can, can you give us a, just a little bit of an overview of how the book came to be sure. and what your sort of Organize, organizing principle was there. Yeah, um, to go to go back into the mists of time. <laughs> this, uh, the book emerged um, sort of from my PhD work, um, which I began as it as it happened um, two weeks exactly after Wallace died. Um, I had I was hmm. all set to, to begin. I had done my undergraduate dissertation on his short fiction, um, and then taken a year out of, of college. Um, and I was I was all set to, to kick off September two thousand and eight, and and then of course he died, and. I started doing the work, but the timing of it, obviously, for that reason, was quite interesting. So, over the my, my PhD took took three years, um, and then you know it, it took it took a while to get the book together. But obviously, over that time, the scholarship mushroomed um, and and changed really radically. Yeah. So the mm-hmm. book actually bears very little relationship to the work that I did um, for the PhD. The only chapter that's kind of more or less unchanged is I think chapter four, which is the the kind of basic philosophy chapter. Um, hmm. Pretty much everything else was new. So so w- where the book basically came from was that that basis, that theoretical basis of my PhD, but then conversations with, with other scholars. And it was just a, such a rich time to be working on Wallace, um, such an exciting time, you know, and, and Matt, you were involved mm-hmm. in, in um, Consider David Foster Wallace. That, that conference back in 2009 was just this, 
unbelievably exciting um, and, and rich discussion. Like we'd all sort of found each other and just got really, really excited over in Liverpool for a couple of days. And I don't think anybody slept very much. Um, so it, it, a lot of it is, is based on, on those kinds of conversations. Um, and I had to go back and, and really radically revisit all of, the, all of the work that I had done just to keep up with the, with the development of, of, of the, the field, um, which was really exciting. Um, where, it, where it basically came from was, or the sort of organizing principle that, that you asked for was this idea that there's no, there are no endings um, that I could find in, in Wallace's work. And I'm interested in short story theory. Um, and I mean, of course, short fiction is, is something where the, the concept of a beginning, middle and end just doesn't make a lot of sense in the way that it, that it, that it does for the sort of traditional structure of the novel. Um, and I, I, I'm probably, and I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, I'm probably the only real Wallace scholar who doesn't totally love Infinite Jest. <sighs> Sorry, <laughs> I'll just hang up now, yeah. shall I? <laughs> I it's yeah, not what thanks I, for listening, everyone. Yeah, it's episode no. twenty-one. Uh, that's a wrap. <laughs> it's it's not what I send people to. Um, people who come and sort of say, "What should I read?" It's it just isn't what I send them to to begin with. I send them to the short fiction because I think that there's yeah. an awful lot of of just extraordinary work there that is not so much overlooked exactly as it's there's, it's it's so delicate that you can almost miss it. Um, and I think that resistance to closure comes ve- comes across very strongly in the short fiction. Um, hmm. So I was I was interested in exploring that a little more. Um, and out of that, the, the concept of failure and, and silence and, and um, incompleteness um, just sort of kept kept reasserting itself. It wasn't part of my PhD work at all. But as I went back, um, I just I kept realizing that it was change the conversation, keep the conversation going, never quite reaching an end and where endings are represented, um, they, they are very often, I think, represented in conjunction with death, um, that there is a sense that an ending in itself is a kind of failure um, or a kind of a, a, a completion that stops a conversation that Wallace very much wanted to keep going, um, which is an mm. extraordinarily rambly way of saying I'm interested in the fact that he never finished anything, it seems to me. I think that's mm. fair, and I think it goes kind of with what he said about the structure of infinite jest in mm. general, which is that um, you know is a fractured narrative because that better resembles his real life. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think his, his that that idea of, of realism when you talk about Wallace and realism, mm-hmm. um, and you know he he did talk about that that this is the texture of the world I live in, um, and right. and we don't have neat narratives. And and looking at the the kind of um, philosophers that I, I see reflected in his work. Um, Ricoeur and, and Rorty in particular, obviously we, we talk a lot about Wittgenstein, but I mean, Rorty's whole philosophical project was to, to keep the conversation going. Um, and similarly, Ricoeur talks about narrative as a way of, of putting order on otherwise inchoate experiences. And, and I think that, that Wallace maybe took that idea and, and sort of said, well, that doesn't really, that doesn't really work. Um, you, you, can, you can try and order a narrative, but it doesn't really reflect reality then. So how, as a writer, can I um, can I begin to reflect the reality that I live in? And so you end up with a novel that ends before it begins, um, which, which is, I think, the definition of not finishing. Um, well, and, hmm. and he also just said he was really bad at writing endings. Sure. And, you know, you also <laughs> got to think like, so I, one of the first stories he wrote was Planet Trilophon, yeah. you know, which ends without um, 
a word like in the middle of a yeah, sentence as, as does broom yeah as, as does broom right Same with broom, so yeah. I, to me that's also like a reflection of like a 24 year old writer mm-hmm. in 1985 who's trying to be clever yeah and yeah. and <laughs> and it uses some kind of philosophical argument to back, to back up it the off. fact yeah that he's just trying to do something different and yeah. he wants to be talked about you know like oh that was edgy mm-hmm. you know when you're 24 and mm-hmm. you know and it's Postmodernism is yeah. sort of at its peak in this point, right? Sure. And and he's reading other kind of structurally interesting stuff, and it's really not that interesting. Like, oh, you stopped in the middle of yeah. A, a and sentence. I mean, <laughs> in in Broom, what's even more annoying is the word that's left out is word. Right. Like, yeah. he's just looking at it going, oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like, it's a little, a little too cute. It's quite man. on the nose, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, yeah, I think that's that's it's it's interesting to to think that he was sort of using philosophy to back up what was ultimately perhaps just a, a kind of a, a trick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I also think, you know, there's, there's something else going on there, which is that he, he does, like you say, have trouble with this idea of closure yeah. in general Yeah, and that, you know, in stories and in life, you know, how can you really be done with something? Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean, I think Oblivion the, the, as a collection is is something that always comes to mind, you know, that, that good old Neon particularly, you know, to, to literally not let death even be the end. You know, death is death is not the end. Um, right. And then you, not another word. And he, kind of this, this idea of of silence, of the ending of something as 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 really frightening and, and awful um suicide mm. is a sort of present as well in in brief interviews um that idea of, of death as a kind of completion um i think so so endings and, and death seem to be very closely tied together to me hmm. i think that's fair and i mean it leads me to wonder uh what you don't like about infinite jest because, <laughs> because it has this you know this piece of a wraith and a yeah. kind of a reader hostile ending where it is for a lot of people deeply just sad yes. to get to the, the end, end of, of it yeah. and you know just to f- just to even finish the book is a type of ending yeah and and yet he i think does try to lead the reader back to the beginning, the beginning of the beginning, book right so that his way in that you know there's a sort of this like authorial statement there that what's driving you back is this pleasure in the text itself yeah and it, it is the kind of book that i think you can get to the end and just turn over and start again you know but if that's a mm-hmm. failure for you um you know maybe talk about that sure it's it's not that i don't it's not that i don't love infinite <laughs> jest i i do um and, and every time i read it i find something new in it of course like i like i think everybody it's it's more that it's such a forbidding book in some ways, even just visually. It didn't fit in my handbag, actually, to be honest. That was one of my big problems with it. Carrying it around was a nightmare. I did actually have, and again, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, I have a couple of copies of, of Infinite Jest, and the first one I had, which was a paperback, I tore in half. Um, oh, yeah, I, I thought about yeah, doing that, Yeah, I, I did, it, and I, I hate doing that. I'm not someone who damages books, but I really had to do it. Um, so partly it's just the 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 sheer size of it is so forbidding for people who are kind of just coming to Wallace. So I think it's, it's that it's that it's so clearly a masterpiece and so clearly the center of a career that I'm not that interested in it. I'm interested in the peripheral stuff. Peripheral um, stuff, yeah. yeah and huh. I, I, I do, I think that getting, getting into Wallace, it's maybe easier through the short fiction, but also 
I read Broom first. That was the first Wallace work that I read. And I think hmm. I have this theory that the, the, the work that you read first is the one you always come back to with Wallace. Um, <laughs> and I think most people read Jess first. Um, so I'm just being contrarian, really, I think. <laughs> well, it's funny because DT Max says the same thing. Yeah. And, and there, there are, you're not alone in this um, <laughs> uh, contrarian streak, Good. I guess. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. You know, uh, um, another... So really, you're just a conformist, Claire, yeah, is what totally, Matt's saying. Yeah, totally, totally. I'm just, I'm the ultimate hipster. It's <laughs> you, you can't be a rebel, no. No, no. no. I think... Um, And this kind of leads me to another thing that you talk about in the book, Mm -hmm. which is some people see, you know, even writing a book that long as being, you have to be really narcissistic sure, or you have to be sort of self involved to the point where just hoping other people will like your story is not enough. You're sort of telling them something else. Um, (laughs) So I'm, I'm curious, you know, what, Talk about narcissism and solipsism for a little bit, because I think that some scholars have interpreted Wallace's uh, reflections on that a mm. little differently than others. Yeah, um, you know how do how do you see that as a as a theme in the his overall work? Um, I mean, I, I think it's it's narcissism and solipsism are obviously they're they're unavoidable um, in Wallace, but I think um, Mary Holland makes makes the point in, in one of her really great essays that. The narcissism you see in Wallace is infantile narcissism. Um, it's not the kind of, or to me anyway, it's not the kind of narcissism that we condemn in society as being sort of self-obsessed. It's the kind of narcissism of an infant that that actually can't see beyond their own boundaries. It's not nothing else in the world is important. It's there's nothing else in in the world. Um, <laughs> so that there's a kind of there's an urgency to it. I I, I always feel. Um, which differentiates it a little bit from the kind of irritating narcissism of of some other writers, perhaps. Um, <laughs> and I, I mean, I guess you you do have to be narcissistic probably to write something that big and ambitious and 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 encyclopedic um, and ask people to read it. But to undertake mm. the project in the first place, never mind asking people to read it, is such a it's such a huge thing to do. Um, that I think, I don't, I don't know of another word for it. I guess narcissism is the word for it, but it's, it's not necessarily selfish. It's self reflective and self, um, self absorbed in a way, but I don't think it's selfish necessarily. Um, and I'm not even to, to, to sort of make a distinction there that it's, you are offering something, um, as he, he, you know, as, as a, as an author, he was offering something for consumption rather than just, um, rather than ordering, I suppose, people to, people to read, so I, I don't know. It's it's a difficult um, a difficult distinction to make. I think, and he talks about it, of course, in the in the McCaffrey interview, but just you know, er, prior to to Jess publication, um, this sense of simultaneously giving and taking. Um, and Adam Kelly talks a lot about that and the idea of of the, the transactional gift um, when he's talking about the the the, the idea of new sincerity. Um, so I think it's it's his writing is narcissistic, but writing in general is narcissistic. I think. Um, so with the narcissism thing, I think that a lot of readers at first glance don't see that mm. because they get a really empathetic connection with the reader. Yes. And, you know, Wallace does have this intention in his artwork to say, you know, what is the art's heart purpose? purpose right. And is it really to try to connect with readers? And I think that he does that extremely well, well yes. or he wouldn't have the kind of following that, that he, he does. does. So, so how, how do you, you, you know 
manage that kind of contradiction? Yeah, well, I think so, so to go back a little bit to the, the, the question of what kind of narcissism we're talking about, I think that's where that distinction comes into play. Because if you, when we talk about narcissism and we talk about toxic narcissism, and it's this real buzzword at the moment, I think, and you, you have all mm-hmm. these articles, you know, do you love a narcissist and, and all this kind of stuff. And what we're talking about is, is selfishness in, in some way. And, and what it seems to me that the kind of narcissism that Wallace in, interrogated and also, I think, engaged in is, is this sort of infantile narcissism whose whole purpose actually is, is trying to get outside of itself. Um, that if you, if you watch, as we were, we were talking earlier about, you know, well, sort of recently having kids and, and so on. And I think if you look at the way an infant communicates, it's not really able to see beyond its own needs. And yet it's, it's, it's primary drive without speech, without awareness, without any kind of anything is to, to move beyond itself is to communicate. Um, and it seems to me that it's, it's that kind of almost, Hmm. incoherent need to communicate that that I see as the narcissism Wallace is talking about. Um, and that is not a selfish thing. That is that is hmm. absolutely empathic and, and asking for empathy, I think. Um, and and hmm. I would distinguish, I think, between narcissism and, and solipsism. Um, and we, we do tend to use the, the terms in, interchangeably. Um, and I mean, solipsism is the idea that there is nothing, that everything in the universe is, is a projection of your own mm. mind. So there's no right. need to communicate. If, if you're a solipsist, there's no need to communicate because there's <laughs> nothing outside yourself. Whereas if, right. you're, if you're talking about that kind of infantile narcissism, the whole purpose of, of everything you do is to get outside of that. Um, and I think that distinction is important and it's one that maybe we don't, we don't always articulate. Um, hmm. You know, I, I think that's really interesting because it sounds like immediately is just a flaw. And I think <laughs> yeah. it, it relates to some other, you know, flaws that you bring up in the sure. book. Uh, especially you deal a lot with love. Yeah. And you're talking about um, romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. and you <laughs> Which de- are always failed Man, or fun. they're just bad. <laughs> they're just, it's awful. <laughs> well, and I, you know, that goes back to something I've said on the podcast before, and I think that's just a fiction writer's responsibility is like, when is you know, right. happiness and love ever made for good fiction. Yeah, true. And that, and that like, well, things went swimmingly and yeah, we just loved, loved each other so much. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's not dramatic. Yeah. And it's a, yeah, that's it's a an awfully boring story. story. Right. Um, and yeah. so, you know, Wallace is, what do you find problematic, I guess, with his portrayal of romantic relationships? Um, I guess you, I mean, you're absolutely right that, you know, fiction at the end of the day is, is an art form and, you know, happiness is, is terrible art as a general rule. Um, you know, the <laughs> hallmark and, and that lady that photographs babies and flowers and, you know, those kinds of... And Gettys. Yes, yes. There's, you know, these kind of happiness in art tends to be pretty nauseating, I think. So I, I guess it's, it's inescapable that we're going to be talking about, about failed relationships. And, and I suppose even in real life, most relationships do fail. Um, I guess it's the, it's the brutality of the the kind of the unromantic um, relationships mm. that I that I see in Wallace that that I find sometimes just draining, just sort of hard to read, um, mm. and even you know there are, there are very few background relationships that are that are successful. Um, you know, even if you're talking about a, a protagonist's family or you know kind of peripheral characters, there are very few images even of, of successful relationships and for a writer who is obsessed with love I think um, in, in, a, in a number of ways romantic, sexual, platonic 
um, and sort of social love almost in that in that empathy question. Um, it's it's just that it it strikes me very strongly that that Wallace didn't write about successful relationships really at all. Um, not that they should necessarily be the focus of, of anything and not that he should have. It just strikes me that he didn't. Well, and what I found kind of distasteful is that after his death, Jonathan Franzen sort of pinged him for this as well. Yeah. And, and said, well, you know, Dave was depressed mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. as evidence of that sort of, he couldn't really write about love yeah, or he was unable to really portray any sort of normal romantic sure, relationships as if Jonathan Franzen right, is right. the world's arbiter of great romantic <laughs> yeah. writing. Wasn't he nominated for one of those bad sex awards a couple of years ago? I'm pretty sure if he not, I'm pretty he sure he was. Be. I don't think he won it even. <laughs> but, but I'm pretty sure he was nominated for one. Um, Which to me, I mean in a way it felt validating as saying, well, thank God he didn't write some uh, yeah. you know happy coming of yes. age story yeah absolutely that that, that, pl- that made jonathan franzen really like wow that really taught me about love yeah that would that would have been depressing in its own way i think <laughs> and you know i and I, I think one of the things a lot of scholars cite as you know kind of misogynistic mm. or uh really misogynistic is brief interviews with hideous men yeah and, and yet mm-hmm. i i see that in a different sort of light and that he's not really triumphant there is he no like i mean oh, God he's knows. sort of saying like this is this is awful men. i mean clues in the title yeah. guys like um no I, I don't see it as triumphant at all and i i know in one of the bookworm interviews he talks about the kind of misogyny that he's writing there as coming from a place of real fear um and fear is right. the term that he uses that these are men who are afraid of women um, which I thought was really interesting, and I think is a is a motivating um, element in in brief interviews. I mean, I think I think brief interviews is an astonishing piece of work. Very hard to read mm-hmm. sometimes, particularly as a woman. <laughs> it's it's quite hard to read some of it. But Wallace himself may or may not have been misogynistic. I don't I don't know. I didn't know him. Um, and mm-hmm. and I, but I think as a writer, he investigates misogyny in in mm. really interesting ways. Um, and and mm. one of the ways that he does that is is through these um, these abortive or failed or sort of miserable sexual relationships. But that doesn't that doesn't mean. And to go back to Franzen, I don't necessarily think that he absolutely couldn't have written about a successful relationship. But as you say, it's not that's not that interesting necessarily, and it's not germane mm. to what he was investigating. And I think that if mm. we if we look at love as a broader concept in Wallace, there's an awful lot of it there. Um, it may not it may not manifest itself in in relationships, which is interesting in itself, I think. Um, but mm. but love is a, a hugely important idea to him. And well, well, and you deal, I, I think, pretty well with that uh, concept in the brief interview number twenty, the granola yeah. cruncher story, yeah. which is really about a brutal rape. Mm. Um, but uh, you know what I. F- I, I want to get your thoughts on that a little more because I, I think that's one of his most underappreciated pieces, pieces yeah. f- not only for what it does in the story itself and the, the power of the language, but really as a metaphor for writing and building empathy b- between the reader that's interesting. And, that, and that his character there has to create empathy with a rapist in order to survive. Yeah. And that's a sort of extreme case, but I think that he put a lot of pressure on himself to connect with readers and saw it as life or death for him. And that when his art was connecting and working well, he felt 
alive and in control. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, so and escaping death almost, not just alive, but sort of surviving, I think. Right. Um, exactly. And and for readers who don't have your book yet, tell tell a little bit about the the chapter where you investigate that story. Yeah, so this is um this is is so was sort of playing around for a while. It's been a sort of a long-standing um it's I, I, like you I think it's it's one of the more underappreciated stories. I think it's one of the best stories. Um and I think it it's sort of it's it's extraordinarily rich. There's an awful lot going on. It's it's a hard story to read again. Mm. Um and it is it is it is a brutal piece of work. Um, but you see, so you have the, the first layer, um, and you hear this, this guy telling the story about how he came to fall in love with somebody. And there's a really interesting balancing act, I think, in the sense that you get the sense, or I get the sense as a reader that the, the, the narrator really believes that he's in love with this woman. You know, he's not, he's not kidding. He, he you know, he, he really thinks that he's fallen in love with, with this granola cruncher, which is what he calls her. Uh, we never get her name. She's never given a name. Neither is he. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yet then towards the end it devolves into this extremely hostile this rant at the at the interviewer uh, which is extremely misogynistic um, and and there's no there's makes no bones about it um, and what what sort of interests me is how you can have that simultaneous love hate relationship that that Wallace himself talked about in in making art um, I'm I'm I find I find brief interview um, hugely unromantic. Uh, I, I think that it's. <laughs> I, I do I'd think. I'd say that's pretty fair. Yeah, um, I think even the love story is is a kind of a an appropriation. So he's telling he is telling this woman's story as though it were his own. Almost, he's appropriated her narrative, in which she has empathised with with a, a rapist and murderer to the point where not only does he not rape her, or he he does, but it's robbed. He's robbed of the rapist's power, which is very problematic i think in in its own way because the mm. idea that by empathizing with a rapist you could turn a rape into not a rape is enormously problematic <laughs> and, sure. it's and pretty i think naive, right? yeah i think so i think so and yet you know it's it's a powerful idea in the story the idea of of, of robbing an agent of agency um and so this guy then then takes he takes the story and relates it to somebody else so he's he's silencing her in another way um, and, and he, 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 again, as I said, we don't get her name. He, he gives her an epithet. He gives her a nickname, um, instead of an identity. And, 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 and yet, so you have this kind of absolute terrible misogyny, or it seems that you have this terrible misogyny going on at two levels. So you have the rapist and murderer who ultimately goes off and kills himself, we think. Um, and then you have this guy who, who is belittling to an extent, the story of, of this woman, but her language comes through the story all the way. Um, her language is, is what takes, takes him over. Um, and in the end he devolves into this ranting kind of maniac because he's not able to take ownership of her story. So in a sense, and I don't want to overstate this, but in a sense, I think that the, the silent feminine that we encounter so much in Wallace has a power of its own that he didn't maybe quite get to grips with. And, and in a sense, this is going to sound possibly a little odd, but it's something I talk about quite a lot in the book that in a sense, the silencing of, of female characters is a is a representation of the the unwillingness to appropriate a voice um, for on, on, on Wallace's part that he doesn't do what his character in, in brief interview 20 does he doesn't say well I will tell this this woman's story um, and I think that in in light of maybe recent discussions I don't know if you saw Lionel Shriver's yes. uh, yeah so I don't know if that's if that's good or bad 
but I think I it's, mean that, it's a double bind. I think is, for Wallace think. that, and, yeah. that if, if he does write from the perspective of a woman, yeah. which he did yeah. for his first novel, yep. then yeah. he is going to be criticized yeah. as saying, well, you know, one, you don't really understand women yeah. and you can't really write authentically from the point from of view the, of yeah, a woman. Like, and then if you don't, right from the point of view of a woman it's like well, well then no, you didn't even try. try yeah you, you haven't done that and, and i think you know this is something we see with with uh, with race and ethnicity as well and i mean the the story that comes to mind there is solomon silverfish yes. which just oh god i mean <laughs> so he he writes in the in the kind of um in this in this vernacular um for all of, yeah and it's so so terrible and then even <laughs> even worse it's there's um this this too pretty character and he writes in in a kind of a, a black um a, a black sort of vernacular as well and and it's just it's it's tearingly obvious and and clunky but i at one level i think at least he tried um and so it's, <laughs> yeah and yet you know again that we come back to this idea of failure and it's i think it is it's a, a double bind that i think all writers probably face um but wallace was very open about us yeah. Um, you say that um, you say that Wallace's masculinity occupies rather than converses. Mm. Yeah, and and this this seems to sort of fit that idea. I think yeah, I think so that that he he not not Wallace himself, and again, you know, I didn't I didn't know him, and I'm hesitant to ascribe mm-hmm. those kinds of motivations. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of his characters, instead of um, instead of engaging in dialogue, they appropriate stories. Um, so, right. so, and that's sort of what I mean by by occupy rather than converse. And again, yeah, in brief yeah. interview twenty is a, is a prime example of it. But it doesn't work mm-hmm. for most of them. Um, hmm. And you see these, you see the the sort of the narrative of the of the female characters very often coming through anyway, coming through sort of despite the best efforts of the male protagonists to to quash them and to, to resist that and to, to assume power. Certainly there are different kinds of power at play um, in, in the writing. And I talk a little bit in the book about the myth of Philomela, who is, um, uh, she was a, a Greek mythological mm-hmm. character who, who suffered a rape and right. whose tongue was cut out by her rapist to prevent her from telling the story. Yeah. And so she, um, she wove a, a tapestry that, that, showed the, that showed it happening to, to sort of indict her accuser and was turned into a nightingale. And it's, it's Ovid's Metamorphosis, I think, um, hmm. which I, I'm fairly sure Wallace was familiar with, and certainly Barth used a lot in Lost in the Funhouse. Um, hmm. So I, I think there's there's quite a long history there, and I think there's, there's a connection with Philomela, perhaps. Um, and that idea of using different forms of language um, mm-hmm. to, to represent female experience, to represent the experience of the other. Um, so I think mm-hmm. when we accuse Wallace of misogyny, I don't necessarily think that we're wrong. I just think it's maybe not that simple. Well, and hmm. I think you know, as as a white male, I can I can speak for myself as a white male. I think that maybe the most feminist thing you can do is to write from a female's perspective without explicitly making it about femininity. Yes, but rather making it about the human condition, yes. which I think Wallace s- sincerely tried to yeah. do with multiple characters. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. Madam Psychosis, you talk a little bit about uh, Tony Ware in The Pale yeah. King. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are some, I think there are some characters who would complicate any sort of grand thesis of gender in his work. But, yeah. Hmm. No, I think, I think that you're right. I mean, I think even going right back to the beginning, if you look at Lenore, there's a lot going on with Lenore that is not about her femininity. It's not about her gender at all. 
Um, right. And as, she, you, as you say, you say that she's a poorly disguised avatar she of is. Wallace. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. I Maybe that's, that's why funny. she doesn't seem very she feminine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think, I think you're right. And I think that's a, that's a really interesting way of looking at it, that, that a feminist action on the part of a male writer is to write a female character who's not just a female character. Um, and it, it may not work, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't, we shouldn't try it. And I'm sure you are familiar with, with the, the recent Amy Hungerford's thing yes. that happened. Yeah, that's been... <laughs> and I just, I think, you know, I was, I was reading it. I don't think she's totally wrong, but I think that she misses the point, um, you know, that, that for, for a writer to, to try and fail is, is probably better than to not try at all. Um, and I mean, Wallace was so bound by his own white masculinity and it's so, so clear that he's just, he's, he's really conscious of it the whole way through his career that to, mm-hmm. to attempt to step beyond that was always going to be hugely fraught for, for, for him. Um, and yet he, he attempted and, and, you know, didn't, didn't shy away from it. Didn't necessarily well, work. Well, and I think that it does speak to, uh, the, the fear or the, um, problem of being a white male fan of David Foster Wallace (laughs) and uh, you know I talk about this in my own uh, perspective all the time because I I hate it because I think it's an unfair stereotype that you know part of what disproves it is that we're talking to you here today Mm. who is a female scholar of David Foster Wallace yeah and and I in my experience there are plenty of them to kind of disprove or back up or just represent in the scholarship even more so than some other say Joyce scholars yeah yeah Joyce I think is still very much a boys club but even there you know you you have I'm I'm speaking in Dublin our library is the James Joyce library sorry about that that's okay (laughs) but um yeah I mean I think that there are a lot of of really really interesting female critics working on working on Wallace and also not necessarily working on Wallace and gender just reading Wallace and criticizing Wallace's readers Um, and I think you know there's a sense in which I think the majority of 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 Wallace's readers probably are male I I don't know Um, but yeah, you say that there's a heavy, heavy bias towards the Y chromosome. I think there is. <laughs> yeah, yeah dude. I, just, I think I just like yeah, that. Yeah, we've been phrase. talking about that a fair bit on throughout some of these episodes, yeah. and and sort of reevaluating if that if that landscape has changed. I, and I, I, think I, it's I seem changing. to get the impression that it is. Yeah, yeah. I think it's changing. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, I, some of the students that I teach, some of the, the ones that read Wallace most astutely, are are my are my female students. Um, mm. I again, I mean, I think it's it's easy to it's easy to read a writer who speaks your language, you know, it's easy to, as, and again, I'm, I'm, this is speculating because not speaking as a white male, speaking as a a white Mm. female, I I don't always relate to the experiences that Wallace is, is, is writing. Um, Mm. and, or or that, that perspective, but I think it's, it's easier perhaps to read from the perspective of somebody who has the perspective that you do. So perhaps he's a, a slightly forbidding writer to begin with as a woman, um, and you know, when particularly when you hear this kind of, oh, he's so misogynistic and this, that, and the other, and he's not interested in women. Um, but I think that there are a lot of, uh, establishment writers, shall we say, who, of whom that's true. Um, and I, I think that, yeah, I think the landscape with, with Wallace readership is changing. Um, it, it, I hope that, so. I, I think you're right. And, um, 
it brings me back to a point about the end of that granola cruncher story, mm, right? right? Of this guy going off on a really like the most conceivable misogynistic rant yeah, you could I imagine. Mean, it's, it's the worst. And there's a story <laughs> I, I remember uh, at one of the Wallace conferences in Illinois. Charles Harris told this story about how. Uh, one of Wallace's students wrote a story in which he used the word cunt mm. and Wallace basically failed the kid wow. <laughs> over it and just said, do not don't, ever don't do, that, do that. that. Get that out of my class. Like, like wow. I'm not even gonna. And yet in the end of that story, Wallace uses the word. He cunt. does. <laughs> and and yes. what I love about the ending of that story is that the last, the end of the story, it literally says end of story. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's like could you get a more literal bad ending and he yes. sort of ascribes it to this kind of bad character yeah it's it's the last word in insults i mean it's i think it's it's one of that is yeah. a word that is still i mean it's the only sort of unforgivable you can't jokingly really, say i mean at least in the u.s maybe you know maybe in the uk it's a little more jokingly i don't yeah, know but, i think uh, i mean i know a lot of people who use it sort of jokingly and it's it's i mean we're, we're pretty profane here in Ireland. <laughs> uh, we, we, <laughs> sure. use, we use profanity as punctuation and for emphasis just all the time. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's very much a part of the, the kind of the, the rhythm of speech here, um, or speaking at least for myself. But one thing to go off on a complete tangent, something that's pretty interesting yeah. is cunt is the only word for female genitalia that does not originally, that was not originally pejorative. Um, so it's an enormously powerful word as well, huh. I think. Um, and I, I could see it kind of being being reclaimed to an extent. Um, so that's, but I think that's particularly interesting. That's where its power lies. That its its origin is not negative. Um, well, well, and it also kind of speaks to this contradictory nature of Wallace, and that mm-hmm. he contradicts himself all the time. All the time. And that you know, it's that's why it's hard to pin him down. Yeah. You know, without for every example that I give on either language or a character of saying, well, this sort of backs up a defense mm-hmm. of him, you could give a counterpoint that says, no, this actually puts him in this other category. Sure. So I, I find it immensely hard to talk about Wallace and gender without just like tallying up those points yeah. of saying like, well, he did this well, well he did that he did bad, that he did this well. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think <laughs> I, I, and that's, I think that that's a good thing. I don't, I think a writer that's easily categorized is a writer you get bored of. At least, yeah, I, I think that that's, that that's, to have a sort of a writer who is, you know, a good feminist writer, if that's the way you're defining a writer, you know, they, you've lost me already, I think. Right. Um, I mean, so, so Chimamanda um, Adichia comes to mind. She is an, an enormously mm. feminist writer, and a, and a, but it's not the first thing I think about it when I think about her writing. I think about the beauty of her prose and the, you know, the fact that I'll, I'll read a, a novel of hers in a sitting and not be able to put it down. I don't read mm. them. I don't read her work because it's feminist. Um, right. Although well, it is, and she's a wonderful writer. And like you said, of the, of the Amy Hungerford idea, it kind of misses the point. Yeah. And that, can you speak a little bit about this idea of erasing the other from his work or, you know, the, the idea of just handling the other in general? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the, 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 the problem that I have with, with what Hungerford is talking about is it seems to me to miss the point on two levels. Um, first of all, I think that she's, I think that she's very simplistically interpreting Wallace. Um, and I, I, and I'll, I'll talk about that in, in a second, but 
Secondly, I mean, she's presupposing that we should only read perfect art. Right. I mean, <laughs> like we'd never read anything. You know, you could good, probably good luck with that. Yeah, yeah like maybe yeah. we could read a fridge manual. You know, but I, I don't, I don't see that. I, I mean, I, I reject her her premise, even if she was right about Wallace. I think, um, but the idea that that this idea of erasing the other, um, it goes back to the question I think of of solipsism um, and the the kind of the privileging of one's own perspective. And as we've been talking about, I think that it's not necessarily um, it's not necessarily a, a bad or a badly motivated thing. I don't necessarily think that that Wallace assumed his his own perspective was the only one that had value. Um, but it's the only one that he's comfortably able to inhabit. And one of the consequences of that can be or can appear to be erasing the other. And I don't, it's easy to read that as a power play. Um, mm-hmm. And it's easy to read that as a, as a sort of staking claim to the territory of literature. And, and again, when we talk about gender, when we talk about race, when we talk about, you know, writers from non-traditional backgrounds, that's, that's a, a conversation that needs to be had. Um, but I, I don't know that it's as simple as saying writers like Wallace are, are erasing other people because they don't care about them. I think it's, I can't believe I'm about to say this. I think it's probably quite hard to be a white male writer. <laughs> Just in that, you're going to get killed for that. Now. I know, <laughs> it, but in that very particular context, it is a challenge for any writer um, to inhabit, and this is, I think, what what Shriver was was um, was pilloried for. Um, I don't think she's totally wrong. I don't think she's right either. Um, but I think the question of inhabiting other minds, regardless of what other minds they are, is an enormously difficult one. Um, mm. And and we always run the risk of erasing the other, or of adopting or appropriating um, an experience that isn't ours to 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 engage with at a deep level. I remember teaching um, Their Eyes Were Watching Gods or Neil Hurston. Um, mm. And it's one of the most challenging texts. I love teaching it um, because there's this chapter in the middle of it. The, uh, it's the longest chapter in the book about a mule that's died. And it's this whole big, and it's so clearly symbolic language. It's, it's very, very clearly a kind of a folk story that has a meaning. But you're not given the keys. She doesn't give you the keys to, to the narrative. So you read this whole long story. And, and as a white, a white writer, or white reader, excuse me, mm. you, you know, you get to the end of it and you expect it to be explained and it never is. And it's like Hurston is saying, this is, this is mine. This is my experience. I know what this means. There are people who know what this means and I am not explaining it to you. I do not owe you that. Um, and I think that's really, really interesting. Um, so the, the question, it's, it's something I go back and forth on, um, you know, the question of writing outside one's own experience and, and engaging with that as a reader, because I think it's a, a huge challenge. Um, and it's, it's one of the, failures in in scare quotes that I think is most interesting in Wallace because there are writers who who do this but but hide it there are writers who don't do it at all Wallace was really obvious about his discomfort with it um and I think that that's it's an interesting failure if 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 it is a failure well and that's why I think some of the responsibility leans more on the reader rather Mm. than the writer and that it's up to you to go and seek out an authentic transgendered story. Yeah. It's, it's, we shouldn't expect everyone who writes to cover, uh, you know, yeah. a, a homosexual, uh, um, person of color and write that authentically. I think that's an incredibly <laughs> daunting it's very, it's, task. Yeah. And I think it's, it's t- that expectation is as limiting in its way as refusing to allow a writer beyond the bounds of their own experience. Uh, and I, I mean, 
it's, it goes back to the question, I think, of what we expect from art at all. Um, I mean, where, where does where does art engage with politics? I think that art is always political. I think it has to be. Um, mm. But I, I don't think that it has to be because it should be. I think it has to be because it is. Um, and and I, I, I think that we have to take it on its own terms to an extent, which is not to say that we shouldn't represent more minority experiences in art. We absolutely should. And, you know, if I, I was reading a review in The New Yorker recently of... I think the book is called All That Man Is and it's James Wood is, was reviewing it. And I really like his reviews, but it, somewhere in the review, he said um, something along the lines of, you know, this, this, this tells the story of nine white male protagonists. And I did just kind of groan, you know, <laughs> um, main, mainstream, mainstream publishing is certainly skewed to, to the white male experience. Like, like most things, I mm. think. Um, mm. And we should certainly, that should, that should, be broadened out and that should be, you know, mm. the, the publishing academy should be opened more and more and as much as possible. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we need to force white male writers, for example, to write beyond their experience. It means that we should be seeking authentic stories from non-white male writers, you right. know? Yeah. Um, and we, I think that we have to take, we have to take art in a sense as it comes. And it's, it's interesting, I think, that we, we ask this of, of written art. We ask written art. We ask novels to encompass the whole world. We don't do it so much of visual art, I don't think. Um, hmm. Now, I'm not a visual art expert at all, but I don't know that I hear people saying, well, you know, portrait art it is very is you know they only painted rich people uh, which is more or less true <laughs> classist um, well, yeah well, I mean, and, and with literature we've got this vita count right so we've yeah. got vita and with film you know they have the bechdel, bechdel test. test yeah yeah but with you're right with um you know certain prizes there mm. are, there isn't the equivalent awareness i think that the diversity is missing yeah um but i think that is a good sort of structural challenge to all of our artistic systems yeah. that needs to happen and will happen. But I do agree with you. And I think that is a separate challenge. Then how do we evaluate yeah. writers in the past tense? Really? Like you can't expect, you know, Hemingway mm. to have your political system. No. Like, well, he was a misogynist. Well, sure. it's like, yeah, no, I mean, yeah. Hemingway's he was born a hundred years ago. Yeah. I mean, he's not someone right? I necessarily want to have dinner yeah. with. Um, but (laughs) you know, I, I don't, and the the question of the artist or the art, I think is, is more and more fraught as we live in a a world that's more and more connected. I mean, I follow Margaret Atwood on Twitter and she's brilliant. You know, she's just, Mm -hmm. if you don't follow her on Twitter, you absolutely should, because she's just so good, but you have this, uh, Teju Cole is another, um, another writer who's, who's very present on Twitter, very present on social media, Juno Diaz as well. Um, and they, mm. they very much take their activism onto, onto social media. And I yeah. think that it's, it's becoming harder to separate the artist from, from the product um, in a way that I, I'm not sure is, is positive. Um, and at the same time, surely, I think that there is, there is, it's important to know to an extent who's writing what you're reading um, or who's, yeah, who's writing what you're reading and, and where the artists are coming from. Um, so it's it's a real it's a double bind again to to use that phrase I think yeah. um, and I don't know that there's an answer and I think it's one of the things that I really like about Wallace actually that that you don't get answers um, that these are well, these are issues that are raised and they're just there you just have to you have to accommodate them that's a huge issue with 
literature in general right mm. now and that there's a shift towards uh, you know, these personal essays that are thinly veiled fiction. Yeah. Or there are, <laughs> you know, massive movements like with Elena Ferrante and Knausgaard and yeah. Sheila Hetty that, you know, that is really just a first person singular point of view um, as a personal essay. And there's already a lot of backlash towards that. But if the market is moving that way, if that's yeah. what readers want, yeah. you know, that is probably we're going to see more of that conflation and yeah. that you can't read Elena Ferrante or Knausgaard and not be interested in their personal lives. Yeah, I mean I'm interested in the the whole Ferrante um, identity thing because I funnily enough I had no no curiosity really about about who she was. Uh, who she but, is. But, but the books are about who but she is. But the books are about who she is and, and I don't think that you get anything more from from knowing her name. Um, or her, her quote unquote kind of real name uh, than you get from from the books. Um, so I think I that was an that. interesting. It's not interesting. I mean, yeah. the, the 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 fact of who she really is yeah. isn't isn't going to reveal any more any than, more she's, than revealed she's revealed really in, the... in the books. Exactly. But I mean, I think you know, looking back at the kind of the early history of the novel, you know, I think I don't know. I think we sort of come full circle in a way because if you look back to the earliest. Um, forms of the novel, they were presented as found documents. They were presented as first person, authentic first person narratives. And I think that we're moving, moving back towards that. Um, it seems to me, um, instead of kind of this sort of dispassionate sort of realist fiction that we had for a lot of the, the, the 19th and kind of really 20th century. Um, so in a sense, I think we're going back to the beginnings of the novel and, and very often they were framed this editor's kind of this editor's note saying this was found, you know, beside a lake, um, I think um, Manzoni's The Betrothed actually begins with that. I think it was this idea that the, a, a par parcel of pages, a, a diary was found possibly in a lake or a bog, or I can't remember. Um, and it's presented as, as, a, as a true narrative because the idea was that, that readers wouldn't accept something that didn't have a sense of authenticity about it. So I think that we're, we're going back to that in a sense. Um, and I remember a few years, I worked in a bookshop while I was at university. And there was a book called The, the Tenderness of Wolves by Steph Penny. Um, and it was set in Alaska. And there was uproar, I mean, in a very small way, over <laughs> an interview that Steph Penny did where she said she'd never been to Alaska. And people were, were phoning in to this show that she was on <laughs> saying, how dare you write about Alaska? You know, yeah. and she was kind of saying, well, you know, did you enjoy the book? Because if you enjoyed the book, then I don't see how we have a problem. Um, well, and Saul Bellow had the same thing with uh, Henderson, the Rain King. Yeah. And, uh, he never went to Africa and wrote a book about Africa. Yeah. And it's like he was just reviled for that because, yeah. you know, not only are you appropriating the, the experience of Africans, but you never even you know, bothered to research it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and, and he, he said it's irrelevant. Yeah. That... If, if it's good fiction, what does it matter if you, you know, you've never been to Mars yeah. and yet you read The Martian? <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I think this is, it's, it's the, it's the crux of a really, a really difficult, I mean, it's, it's a, a Gordian knot to an extent. I, I, there isn't an answer because at the same time, while I agree with Bella to an extent and I agree with Penny to an extent, you know, there is the question of cultural appropriation. There is the question of silencing these voices of, of, you know, forbidding the academy to them, um, and that does need to be redressed. And, and I don't know where I don't know where the balance is. You know, um, yeah, well, it's it's an interesting problem because it's not likely to be 
solved in a definitive way exactly and and it does speak <laughs> but it does speak to why people read and yeah. that you know people read science fiction for greatly sure. different reasons than they read a book of advice and so like a book of advice you're not going to listen to someone who is not an expert. Mm. You know, you know, you've got a small child. If you want to read a child rearing expert, it's unlikely you're going to he hear some 22 year old college student and, <laughs> and, and to take their advice and be like, wow, that was really insightful. And I'm yeah. going to just, you know, if they don't have the personal experience, most people expect this expertise. And in one point in your book, you talk about how Wallace sort of abrogates that idea mm. of being an expert. Even when he and is an expert. Yeah. Right. And so you say that's kind of disingenuous. <laughs> yeah. And that, I think, and that really, does that make him, do you think he was unable then ultimately to write beyond his own perspective? Um, I think, and you know, I've, I've kind of said this before. I think that, I think that he was very conscious of feeling that he couldn't write beyond his own perspective and, and whether he could or not, I think his own consciousness of us sort of prescribes us in, in a way. And perhaps if he'd been less self-conscious his writing beyond his own experience would have been less um, clumsy. Um, but because he was so conscious of it all the time and kept drawing attention to it, um, you know, you have this very, it's, it's impossible as a reader not to, not to notice it. Um, but the, the, I do think his, some of his nonfiction is disingenuous. I, I find it charming in some ways. Um, <laughs> but once, I think once you notice it, it becomes very hard to stop noticing it. So one of the one of the places he really does it is in greatly exaggerated in a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, where he keeps saying he, he aligns himself with his readers in a kind of an us and them um, scenario and sort of saying it's hard to know who's who's going to be interested in this except for hardcore theory weenies I think is the phrase that he uses but like <laughs> yeah. he was a hardcore theory weenie and you know this was in the Harvard Law Review <laughs> like these are hardcore theory weenies um, yeah. so yeah. it's there's a there's a funny kind of um, he, he takes on this, it's part of the voice that he has, I think, in, in, in the nonfiction, which is that, that gorgeous, inclusive, welcoming, you know, listen to your best friend um, voice that, that I think certainly I find just endlessly charming. Um, but, but part of that is that he, he, he doesn't, he refuses to assume expertise for, for anything. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's sorry, that was authority in American usage I, I was talking about just there, actually, greatly exaggerated. He talks about um, he talks about um, post-structuralism in a, in a pretty knowledgeable way. Um, and, and he keeps saying, you know, I don't know about this. I don't know about this. And yet he very clearly <laughs> does. Um, and then in, in Consider the Lobster, I think he talks about um, a, a swanky East Coast magazine. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're, he says they're kind of disingenuous these magazine people he's working for the magazine he is the magazine people <laughs> you yeah. know and it, it establishes what i think is a spurious relationship with the reader it's a shortcut to empathy i think um yeah. and just once i noticed it i couldn't stop noticing it and then i wanted everyone else to notice it too um, so yeah but i i you know at the same time i i i find the i find the nonfiction. fiction i love the nonfiction. i just love reading it um, but there are places still where he he rejects the, the notion of expertise himself, even when he is an expert. But then at other places, um, so for example, everything and more, you know, he, <laughs> he, he just is not very good at maths, actually. Um, and, <laughs> and, you know, you sort of you're reading it going, those are those are not the same thing. These, 
think he conflates two paradoxes. Um, he conflates Zeno's paradox with with something else. Yeah. I can't remember exactly what it is offhand. Um, and and you're sort of reading it, going, it's it's actually it is actually a little clumsy here. Yeah. So I'm not totally sure what I'm getting. And you also called everything more. You say that that he has simple, poor writing in it. <laughs> I I think he tries to do so much with it's such an ambitious text. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and I think he tries. He, you've got these these um, if you're interested sections. Um, and and right. so he tries to sort of play to people who don't know a lot about maths but are interested. Um, and I would be I would be one of those. I'm interested in infinity. I think it's a I think it's such a fascinating um, sure, concept. Yeah. And, and <laughs> even from a, a linguistic philosophy perspective, it's it's hugely interesting. And so much of what Wittgenstein was talking about emerges from Cantorian set theory, um, and mm. emerges from what he's talking about with with everything and more. But he's he's simultaneously trying to write to people who are not very good at maths, and and then write to people who do know a lot about maths. So you, you're invited as a as a kind of a a well-informed reader, which I, by the way, I'm not when it comes to maths, to skip like 50% of the text. Um, and I just think that's, it's not really, I don't see how it's possible to write both of those texts in one. Um, and I, I think that everything in more is a, a fascinating disaster of a book. <laughs> I like it. And again, it's, you know, it's this, it's this voice that I just, I really, I really want to listen to more, but I find it very frustrating to read. Um, mm. so that's, yeah. So it's not your, your second recommendation after, uh, the short fiction in particular, <laughs> like is, is oblivion your go-to oblivion first is, oblivion is rec- my recommendation go-to. to it people? Depends what, what, it depends what kind of reader they are, of course. Yeah. Um, oblivion is my go-to. And then the, I mean, I just, I love the, the nonfiction. I really do. Um, I, yeah. I, I, I send people to get both flesh and not now cause it's just such a wonderful collection. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I have to say, I have such a soft spot for Broom. I just love it. I do. It's it's yeah. like the the flaws in Broom, which are are many. I think are just so endearing. I just mm. you know, it's so clearly a young writer who's who's got this. He's overflowing with talent and love. Yeah. He just loves writing. You can see it so clearly. It's much less yeah. tortured, I think, than than any of the rest of us. And I just I find it really kind of infectiously. I find it funny, which says a lot. It's I think so about funny. my sense of humor. Um, oh yeah, like the Norman Bombardini scene, which just, you talk about a fair yeah, bit in your book, he's just, with the stakes is out of control. Funny. Yeah, he's such a great character, and the names. I know that I you know I know it's 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 so much. Pynchon and Barth, but it's yeah. just like Judith Priest, <laughs> like who thinks of that? Um, so uh, yeah, I, 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 that's that's probably that's my favorite. Um, yeah. As I said, I read it first anyway, so that was that was a big yeah, part yeah. of it, I think. So it's nostalgic too. <laughs> yeah. Bef- before we wrap up, we have been speaking with Claire Hayes Brady, lecturer in American literature at University College in Dublin, and. We have really enjoyed reading your book, The Thank Unspeakable you. Failures of David Foster Wallace, mm-hmm. and. Do you want to, I was going to ask before we let you go, what, can you summarize a little bit of the conclusions that you come to at the end of the book? Oh, it's so long since I read it. <laughs> um, sure. well, just it, it, hypothetically, what would you, how do you think of it now? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, as I said at the beginning of the, of the podcast, it's a bit of a clickbaity title. Um, the original <laughs> title was actually Necessary Failure. Um, hmm. and, and I think that that actually encapsulates a lot of what I'm talking about that. And I, I don't want to go too neoliberal on it. I'm not suggesting that failure is a path to success. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I do very much think that the, the failures that, that I talk about in the book, which are both failures on Wallace's part as a writer and failures within his writing. Um, I do mm-hmm. think that they're failures in the sense that, that Beckett's writing 
I think was is 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 engaged with failure as well. I think it's it's difficult and it's um, it's upsetting and it's frustrating in some ways, but that it's also generative. Um, and I, I see failure as part of a resistance to closure um, that, that, you know, none of the novels end. short stories, I think, can't end. I think it's, it's part of the form. And there's this desire to keep things going, to keep a conversation going, to never quite let the reader go. Um, and I, which I find as a reader, I find um, very endearing. I find, I find, I come back to it again and again. As a critic, I find it sort of difficult to get to grips with sometimes. Um, but it's one of the things that keeps bringing me back to Wallace, the sense that, that he wanted to keep talking. He wanted to keep writing and keep going, um, mm-hmm. and, and to find a, a way to bridge the gap between himself and, and the rest of the world. And, and I think that's, for me, that's the, the real heart of his work and, and heart is exactly what I would call it. Um, mm-hmm. that there is an, an extraordinary amount of love there for the world, for language, for people mm-hmm. in all of their confusion and failure and hopelessness and badness at relationships um, <laughs> yeah. and I, I, I there's a there's a heart a real beating heart there that i i keep going back to um mm. and yeah, I, think I, that's... Found, I found your conclusion immensely hopeful oh thank you um particularly like the last line you say that wallace's resistance to ending helps us to locate a beginning yeah it was weird trying to write a conclusion to a book that is all about the lack of a conclusion <laughs> Um, right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and I think, you know, I, I, I see a lot of, of Beckett, um, that the fail again, fail better, um, mm. I think is, is, and I find I'm somebody who reads Beckett quite hopefully. Um, and I read Wallace yeah. hopefully as well. Yeah. Um, very, very mm. much so. So well, my, cool. my fourth grader is fond of telling me that fail stands for first attempt in learning. Ah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, I've come across that so, on Pinterest uh, like before. That. It's, <laughs> uh, um, there are a lot of those. Um, they're, so they're sort we of use weird. that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Claire, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to us thank about you your book and, and Wallace in general. Yeah, it's been awesome. Um, where can people find some of your work? I know recently you wrote a post for Poor York Summer. Yeah. Um, particularly um, about about the politics of, of ethnicity and gender. Yeah. In Infinite Jest. I wrote that while great. I was on holidays. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not entirely coherent, I think. Um, but I've, That's okay. Uh, it's a blog. Yeah, right? that's, like, that's what I figured. Um, yeah. I recently actually wrote another piece. Um, I sort of mentioned Wallace briefly in it um, for the Honest Ulsterman magazine, uh, which is humag.com, their latest issue on on motherhood, actually, on the cultural experience oh, yeah. of motherhood and, and that as a, as right. a journey into language. Um, I'm on maternity leave at the moment, uh, so I haven't been doing a huge amount of, of um, sort of normal work, as it were, but I have an essay on George Saunders coming out later oh, this good. year, cool. I think, mm-hmm. um, on language and politics, which has proven horribly... Um, relevant i think in sort of recent (laughs) recent times there's a lot about the brief and frightening reign of phil in there if anyone's read it um so that's coming out i've got a piece on jody pico coming out sometime next year um on women's writing and that that funny dichotomy um Hmm. i'm also in a total side interest uh publishing a book of essays on burlesque um and in ireland yeah um, that's coming out late next year with with Intellect uh, Intellect Press. It's just gone. Um, it's just gone to, back to the publishers. Um, what else is going on? I have a piece in Orbit soon enough uh, for their Wallace special issue. I can't remember what I've written to be perfectly honest. Uh, you, <laughs> so you sound very prolific. Yeah, <laughs> there's some of the stuff anyway. 
And you're on Twitter, right? I am on Twitter at Claire yeah. Hayes Brady. Yeah, Claire um, Brady, please, great. please come and follow me. It's a lot of a lot of it at the moment is about breastfeeding and cake, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but sometimes I tweet about important things as well. <laughs> That's awesome, Claire. We also want to give a huge thank you to Bloomsbury Academic who sent us your book, yes. uh, Gratis. Yes. And uh, they've been amazing to, to Matt and I. They've been sending us so many books lately. They are brilliant, uh, so yeah. So big thanks to Laura Ewan over at Bloomsbury for uh, just being like, hey, what do you guys want? What can I send yeah. you? And she's just yeah. sending us all this They're stuff in the mail. They're just single-handedly so. establishing a Wallace Cannon over there. No, it's, it's amazing. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, and they really are with Lucas Thompson's book coming out. Yeah. will be the first and the new um Stephen Byrne edited yes, David so, Foster Wallace series. I can't wait series. to read it. I'm so excited. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, they sent us uh, the electronic <gasps> version of that. Jealous. Yeah. Oh, okay, must get on this. <laughs> Maybe we'll we'll send it to you. Please do, please do. I'll send you my address. <laughs> I'm like, right. yeah. well, we we don't have the hard copy yet. That's but we okay. have the electronic. <laughs> Edit this out later, Dave. Obviously, yeah, well. I would I would love to read it. I would love to read it. <laughs> I'm sure they would send it to you too. Yeah, I might get in touch with Harris yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome, Claire. Well, All thank right. you so much again. Thanks uh, so much, guys. We can we can be found online as well. We're uh, we're Concavity Show on Twitter, and you can email us at concavityshow at gmail dot com. As always, we want to thank Robin O'Neill for her art for our podcast and the band Parquet Courts for their song. And uh, I think that covers all the things, Matt. Is that about it? That's it for now, Dave. All right. Thanks again, Claire. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Skype. I hate Skype so much. Maybe, I feel like Google Hangouts might, is maybe more consistent. Once more with feeling. Uh, Oh, there you go. It's so frustrating. I meant to say at the beginning of the show, like, to just don't pause the audacity. Yeah, I left it going. We've had shows where this happens over and over and over and Skype problems and we switch to Google Hangouts. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, hopefully. Uh, So that'll be plan B in (laughs) case it goes down. (laughs) But it often gives me uh, an excuse to curse. And then Dave puts that at the end of the uh, show as like an Easter egg. (laughs)